Welcome to Supply Chain Connections. I'm Brian Glick, founder and CEO at Chain.io. Today, we are going to have a conversation with Amit Daniels, who is the founder and CEO of Windward. Me is also a former naval officer, and we had so much fun chatting that we're going to split this one into two episodes. So this is part one, but we are going to hear all about what it's like to run a publicly traded company. We're going to talk about his, his journey and the culture of learning that he's trying to create within his company. Really, really, really cool stuff. So I hope you enjoy the episode and come back for episode two. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell me a little bit about yourself and why you uh, ended up with Windward. My name is Ami. I'm 39. I'm married to Adi. We have two kids, 10 and 8, Scott and Tavol. I've learned, by the way, that very little people introduce themselves first with their children in mind. I, I actually think that your family is what defines you as a person. Yeah, that makes sense to you. Not just your professional expertise. How did I get here? Well, I wanted to be the best at something. I studied in a gifted student class. Somebody thought I was gifted. They were obviously wrong. And I wanted to be the best at something, and people were better at me than math or physics. So I ended up volunteering a lot. During the 10th grade, I think I volunteered about 1,200 hours. So when I was in high school, I ended up building this Jewish ultra-Orthodox community center in my hometown, won multiple awards. Then I joined the Navy, and then I built another NGO. Uh, this is how I hit on my wife. Hey, do you want to build an NGO together? You know, sounds good. Can I buy you a beer? <laughs> and I served the Navy for a while, and my ship got hit by a missile. And I just loved the ocean, and I felt this is something which was then looked pretty niche to me. It doesn't look niche to me anymore. I could be the best at and could contribute to the world. So I think it's about focus and excellence plus purpose, if that makes sense. So I want to dig on something there. As a fellow founder, being a founder can have a hell of an impact on family life. Yep. Good and bad. Yep. How does that work in your head? <laughs> I don't think being a founder is your choice. I think it's your family's choice. So the way I look at life, I look at it as a partnership between you and your partner. And I think we try to take all decisions together and we're going on the same path together and on the same journey together. And being a founder is part of it with its upsides and downsides, and hopefully there are both. I could say the same on everything we do, which is how to raise kids or a bunch of the things we've been doing here in Israel since the war started on October 7th. You know, my wife and I built multiple national projects together, still are. So the long and the short of it is, I think it's about partnership and trust. And if you can hold these two things, then I think it makes sense. And if you can't, don't even try. That's very reasonable. So you guys have been pretty successful as a company. Sometimes it's hard for us as founders. We see all the problems and we see all the warts. Of course. But, you know, you're doing something, right? We're here, right? Yeah, we're here. What's the journey been to that? What's it felt like? First of all, it feels like a lifetime. You know, the company's 12 years old, soon to be 13. When we started, I knew nothing about building a company, like absolutely nothing. I had no clue about, you know, building a product or AI or engineering. You know, I was a Navy officer. My co-founder also was a Navy officer. You know, I studied law, not exactly your first choice, I guess. My mother was happy there for a while. <laughs> That's got to count something, you know, for a Jewish mom. I didn't end up being a lawyer. She told me, listen, you need to do something safe. Go be a lawyer. <laughs> I said, mom, I don't want to be a lawyer. 
or a doctor. That's it. That's your two choices. So those are the two options. <laughs> That's the two options. Either a lawyer or a doctor. Otherwise, you're a failure. Failure. We can talk about Jewish moms later. <laughs> anyway, so when we built the company, I think on the one hand, way ahead of our time. On the other hand, I think it's a question of perspective. I think we're right in time. I think, how do you judge a decision with the perspective of time and patience, I think? So we circled around looking for a need. I think our vision was to bring visibility to the oceans. I know in supply chain, visibility means one thing, but that's not what we meant. We didn't mean knowing where containers are. We meant knowing what's the impact of what's happening on the oceans of the world. And we tried to reciprocate that or translate that into business applications, products, values to customers. And we landed in the beginning on governments and illegal fishing because we were Navy officers. That's what we knew. You know, it's much easier to do something you're really good at, like Navy stuff. I was young and I didn't understand a lot of things. We failed doing a lot of things. So I'm sure you only succeed in everything you do and everything you touch because that's you. But, of the time. <laughs> but me, I don't succeed all the time. So we failed in building an oil flow product, which I think companies like Kepler and Vortex are doing a great job in. Well done to them. We had a great business plan, but we couldn't execute on it. Life's tough. Then we went into marine insurance. We still have about 15 marine insurance customers, but it's not a huge market. But that led us to sanctions compliance and working with tankers and you know oil majors, and which is a great product now, which led us also to building stuff for supply chain, which you think now we're consolidating into a vision. And I actually think that once we've IPO the company in the UK, we can talk about it, then I think we're building the vision for the next 10 years, which I'm super excited about because I think you have no right to exist if you don't have a vision as a founder. You're just another guy selling stuff. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. So I have a question about maybe for my benefit, but like, how do you give the people on your team who are not founders sure. the courage to fail like that? We signed up for it, right? But yeah. employee 10 didn't. Yep. So first of all, I got to say, I was really bad at it once. <laughs> so, Those are always the best lessons are from the people who yeah, had I to learn it. <laughs> at it. And I can tell you why. The reason I sucked at it, because like I came from the Navy, like seven years in the Navy. And the Navy... The organizational culture is a captain. Oh, captain, my captain, right? There's mm -hmm. a captain that he calls the shots. He's the guy who knows the most. He's been the most at sea. You know, he did all the roles, yada, yada, yada. He sees everything first. So that was the culture I came from, which in hindsight was stupid. And I think I took a another stab at it. I think post-IPO, I really kind of I looked at every single thing I do, every single interaction, how I speak, how I write how I interact, how I work with my customers, how I run the company, every single thing. Because for me, it was kind of a gateway to the next level, which hopefully is, I think, panning out well. And we've built a process, which I'd like to share with everybody, because I think it's a really good tip that I wish somebody told me. So we've built a process focused on learning. So the number one element in organizational psychology that answers your question is called psychological safety. Psychological safety is the ability for somebody to feel comfortable to fail and said, oh my God, I failed, I suck. And what we're doing is top down from management is first of all, I'm making everybody write, what did I learn? Everywhere. I'm saying, what did I learn? And I said, oh, well, I made that mistake. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we've built a process looking at every one of our business lines, which is a hands-on process I run personally, which I think everybody should adopt. I think it's a great process that looks... Everybody who's involved in every business line looks at every couple of weeks for an hour and a half, 90 minutes, super intense. Top of the funnel, sales, right? Top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, bottom of the funnel. 
product development, product marketing, digital marketing, customer success, business development alliances. Maybe I forgot something. And action items from last week and momentum. That's the 10 action items, 10 items. And everybody pre-writes everything and talks about only about what they learned, not about what succeeded or what failed. We assume everybody has read everything and you get like two minutes each, every guy to say, oh, you know, on top of the funnel, I learned that I should target these and these people and these and these emails work and so forth and same in product, everything else. And I think that is leading the culture intensively over the last year towards learning, 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 and learning equals I can make mistakes because if I make mistakes, I don't get battered in the head. I get, oh my God, what did mm-hmm. you learn? Thank you for sharing. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I mean, we're big subscribers here. Started with a DevOps team, but it kind of expands to on using the blameless postmortem framework, which is where when things go wrong, yep. you know, you basically say, how did the company fail? Sure. Right? Cool. Not how did an individual fail for the same cool. thing. So you can learn from it. So you create that space. So I'm going to write that down, the blameless. Yeah. yeah, that's a really cool thing. You know, maybe we can find some links for the show notes, but it came out of the development environments of saying, okay, if we talk about who failed, people are not willing to share. If we talk about how did the company fail the person, you know, the example I always use is you have a big red button on the wall at the data center and nobody's supposed to press the big red button and somebody leans on the wall and hits the big red button and the whole data center shut down. This literally happened to me in my career. This is not a made up story. Okay. And so- Were you the guys leaning in? I was not the guy with the cleanup mess. I'm so tired. But there will be people listening who were in that room. (laughs) By the way, in the Navy, they would have killed him. So it happened to me once, you know, in an operation where one of the officers was learning to be like, you know, for some Mm -hmm. training and he ended up shutting all the electricity down. Right. We're all the ship in the middle of the sea. So that was not the blameless postmortem framework. It was like, let's kill him framework. I think it makes a big difference. Right. So the lesson is, if you get that person in the room and you get everybody in the room and you say, why did you screw up? Now you've got a defensive person. If you say, what did we do that put you in the position to fail? And in the case of that situation, it was two things. One, should have been a cover on the button. And two, that person's job did not require them to be in that room. And we didn't establish the right procedures to prevent that person who didn't know what they were doing from because it was like a facilities person, but not a data center person. So those were the learnings we took out of having a safe space to talk about it. Nice. One of the big risks to make an awkward segue here that you guys have taken is going public. I live to segue. I live to segue. Live to segue. Well, there you go. It was going public though. So kind of like talk me through the why there and how it's changed the company. Yeah. So first of all, I'd like to say to all the listeners, many ways to skin a cat. And I don't think there's one way to build a company. And I think oftentimes when you raise money from VCs, they tell you there's only one way to build a company. I actually disagree with that. I think I'm living proof that there isn't one way to build a company. There's no one way, one type of investors, one type of product, one type of culture. There's many ways to get to the same point. And when we looked at it, I think when it was a couple, two and a half years ago, we saw like we had a bunch of proposals from private equity. Everybody was discounting our future. They were like, yeah, you're growing this. How do we know you succeed? By the way, we didn't get any crazy valuations, unfortunately. Or fortunately, I think, actually, I think it's a good thing because I know companies who raise 500 million and are selling less than 10 million and like 50 people. And I was like, what are you going to do now? You need to recapitalize all your cap table. But anyway, so we had a bunch of options for private equities and VCs for term sheets. But a lot of them wanted like 30%, 40%. How do we get close to control? How do we tell you what to do? 
And I didn't know any of them shared my vision or our vision and didn't get the business. Then this dude just showed up and says, hey, how about you go public? And I said, okay, in the US, we're too small. And said, no, there are other options. So the more I looked at it, I think there are a few very, very good benefits. I think number one, we raise cash in good terms. Number two, you retain control as a founding team. So you don't get a private equity to own 50% or 49% of the business tell you, what do you have for lunch? What do you have for dinner? Like, why is that so expensive? Can't you turn around and fire somebody and have a less expensive dinner, right? So that's number two. Number three, we thought, and I still think, it's better for the brand. So customers evidently feel much better to sign five to seven-year contracts with us, which I've never seen in my life. They're not like, oh, yes, yeah, 12-month contract. It's like, okay, how about 60, to 60 months? Cool. So I think it's good for the brand, for the customers, because they don't really know that they don't really care about all the rest. They just want to know you're there, you're sustainable. I think it also, there's financial benefits, which you get some liquidity for employees and investors. You get common shares and not preferred shares. I think there's, that's also benefit some of the employees, obviously, potentially. So I think these are the, like, the straightforward benefits. But I think, you know, I'm sure there's a saying about this. If you put something in the light, it becomes like brighter, clearer. I'm sure there's a mm-hmm. saying about this. So you get to more scrutiny as a, as a CEO of a public company. It's annoying in the beginning, but actually, if you have to defend over and over again everything you do, and you look at parameters like margin, you know, I've never looked at radiate margin before we went public. I'm sorry to say, I'm to apologize. Or every bit of expense, every dollar you spend on everything, everything, tell me everything, right? So you need to be very thoughtful because you're in the limelight. And I think it makes you a better CEO. We also retained a very good board. We have a great chairman, Lord John Brown, who was COBP. So he's my mentor. I'm really, really privileged to have him. Because you get a level of coaching and understanding you don't get otherwise. And I think it's just a matter of how you look at it. I look at going public as step number one. Previously, we were step number zero. Now you're step number one. There's 99 steps to go, which I think is the right way to think about it. I don't think about it as, oh my God, I'm done. Bye-bye. Give me a jag. I'm under the age of really, I don't really want a jag, I think. I think I want to build and make a difference. Does that make sense? It does. But it's a risk. Yeah, yeah. So, well, how does it affect your willingness to take risks, right? Knowing that. Again, like we talked a little bit about failure, but like, you know, the potential for failure is much more transparent, right? So, a hundred percent. First of all, I think it took me a while to know how to run the public, like part of the public markets, right? I don't run the public markets, obviously, but how to do that, how to communicate, how the forecasts work. I think it took me like a year to get through that. I think it adds limitations. It costs, you know, money, costs about a million bucks to be a year to be public in the UK. I think. You get more limitations on spend, I think, and burn. Although I would argue that also private companies get, you know, a lot of, you know, burn regarding burn right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, sir. I run one of them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've reduced our burn by 75% this year. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yes. Big yeah. deal. So, yeah. So, so we're pushing hard for profitability. And I obviously expect to have very, you know, good news. I think it's going in the right direction. But theoretically, if I were private, I would have less a million dollars of spend, and nobody would have known if I would, you know, lost $2 million more, as long as right. it makes sense. So I think it reduces your flexibility. It does allow you to make acquisitions more easily if you want to. But, you know, there's a number at the end of the day. And everybody look at the number and say, today you're successful. There's a great Jeff Bezos quote, which I loved. So after we went public, the stock went up to like 228. Went public at 150 or 155, and you know, it was $80 this week, right? So Jeff Bezos said, don't feel you're 30% smarter if your stock goes up 30%. <laughs> because when it goes down 30%, you wouldn't want to feel 30% more stupid. 
Right. So I think if you play, especially as a founder CEO, if you play the long game and you know you're going to deliver, everything's going to be fine. As long as you think about it as I'm building a business, I'm not building an exit, I'm not building a liquidation event, I'm building a big business that's going to make an impact on the world and be you know, infinitely successful forever. If I was going to draw a really obscenely large generalization here, yeah, yeah. then this gets to something we talked about in our prep, Sure, that there are founders who the fantasy for them or the mission is to found a company and it doesn't matter what the company does because it's the IPO is the goal, right? Or the JAG yeah. is the goal. And then there are founders who are, you know, whether the mission is altruistic or the mission is just a problem that they saw in the world yeah. or a thing they just think is a great idea. They want to see that thing happen. And I think there's a really big distinction in how you run your business. And as things get harder and money gets more expensive, those of us, you know, and I'll stake this position, but like those of us who are doing this because it's either we don't have a choice or because we want to versus like we wouldn't care if we were just selling t-shirts if it made us the same return on investment. I think we're the ones that are lasting through these downtimes and because it doesn't matter as much to us. It's not as, okay, my valuation's down this year. Who gives a shit? I'm still building my vision, right? Like, yeah. First of all, I want to say, especially in light of what's been happening in Israel in the last 52 days, I think I'm tremendously privileged to be having this conversation with you today. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I take it for granted. There are people who you know, lost their lives or lost their loved ones, and they will never come back. So I don't really think of myself as a guy who cares about money, I have to say. Saturday, nobody likes to live like you know, poor life, but I don't do anything for money. I would never give up my values for money. No matter how much money you offer me, I will never, ever do anything that I don't believe in. Never. You can say I'm stupid, by the way, and that's okay. I walked away from multiple opportunities where I could make much more money. And I know people who are much richer than I am, and they took different moral decisions. And I wrote that on LinkedIn a couple of days ago. I think always live a life you'll be proud to tell your kids about. So I think for me, it's absolutely about the purpose and the vision. I think accelerating global trade. I think it's a very unstable time in the world today. I think the world is becoming even more unstable. It will become more unstable. So I think stability and trade and reducing friction is something that makes a big difference. I think understanding you know, supply chains for illegal fishing and running efficient supply chains allows people to actually get the stuff in time. Because I remember the fact that there wasn't any toilet paper. If you look at what's happening with Russia, and the price gap on oil, which we're obviously deeply involved in because our customers do due diligence with our products, I think that makes a difference. So I think if you do something that makes a difference in the world, you're more resilient to what's happening with valuation going up or down because you have a northern star. Mm -hmm. I know a very like budding entrepreneur that you know calls me once a couple of days and says, oh, you know, I want to be this rich, I'm going to sell this much money, and then I always tell them, listen, I don't think it's the right approach, like. Maybe that's an outcome, but that can't be the reason for going through the journey. So we try to keep these things down to bite-sized bits for everybody's commute. We've been having so much fun on this episode, though, that we're going to keep it going with another one. So I hope everybody joins us for episode two. As always, make sure that you're checking out our blog. And I think there's some links that we'll get into these show notes based on the first half of this conversation. And you want to come back on the second half where we'll be talking a lot about generative AI and 
some realistic views on where that fits as well as the capital markets and just some really, really interesting stuff. So, so excited for you to join us on episode two.